So today we're going to begin a new series in uh, the book of Colossians. We had hoped that uh, Larry would be able to uh, kick us off today, but um, uh, the real world intervened, and uh, sadly his his mother passed away recently, and they had their uh, funeral service uh, yesterday. And uh, with all that's going on, he he um, asked if we could swap places. So this means I'm going to cover the second half of Colossians chapter one today. And next week, Larry will do an introduction to the book and then cover the first half. So unfortunately today, we have to do without what promises to be an excellent introduction. I'll probably touch down on a couple of verses in the first half in order to set the context for what we'll do today. but. I hope it won't steal any of his his material. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do to start um, in light of this swap is actually to read the whole first chapter of Colossians. So if you like, and, and you, you can just listen or you can follow along in your Bible, <clears throat> I'm going to read now Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Excuse me, I have a bit of a cold. Of which I became a minister, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Lord Jesus, this is such a great passage that speaks about you in many ways. And we're so grateful for what you did in the life of the Apostle Paul in bringing him uh, that direct re revelation on the road to Damascus and uh, setting him on a path that um, resulted, among other things, in us having these very important and precious communications that he had with your saints in various cities in those times. And uh, we love this book. We're looking forward to moving through it. And we pray today that as we uh, study this passage, that you would touch our hearts, that you would motivate us for the work that you have called us to. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I'd like to, <clears throat> what we're going to cover today is verses 15 through 29. And um, I'm going to take uh, a certain view on this uh, that um, may not be the exact view that uh, Larry brings out next week when he covers the first half. But what I would like to uh, suggest is that Paul, among many other things in this chapter, reveals to us what his heart is for the ministry that he's doing uh, among, among the churches and among Christians. 
You'll notice in verse 9 that he says he's not ceased to pray for the Colossians. And that's sort of interesting since uh, he's only heard of the Colossians. But uh, from the moment he heard of them, he has not ceased to pray for them. And then in verses 10 through 12, we hear what he's praying for them. He has a specific prayer for them. And uh, the essence of that prayer is in the first phrase of verse 10. That's what I want to sort of fix in our minds as we as we uh, proceed through the second half of the chapter today. He's praying that the Colossians may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So you can imagine Paul getting up every morning and he's having uh, his morning devotions and uh, he comes to the point in those devotions where he spends time in prayer and he's going over all of the churches that he had a hand in starting and all the people that he's he's met and he's mentioning these all before the Lord. He comes to the Colossians and he asks the Lord that the Colossians might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him every day, that they may walk in a manner worthy to the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Um, at the at the towards the end of the chapter, starting from verse 24 to the end, uh, he says more things about his ministry. And it's interesting to think of these in light of this prayer of his that they may walk worthy. He says in verse 24 that he's gladly suffering in the process. Of uh, preaching the gospel. He says in verse 25 that God has given him the gift of stewardship over the task of making the word of God fully known. So this is a this is a, a gift that he thinks he's he, he understands that he's been given a gift of stewardship over this message. In verse 28, he says that I'm proclaiming, I'm warning, I'm teaching. So you can see his heart, his, his entire being is focused on the gospel and what he's doing in his life. He's single-minded in purpose. We see this again and again in his writings. Also in verse 25, he says he works to present people mature in Christ. And that's an echo of verses 9 through 12 that we spoke about earlier. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And in verse 29, he tells us that he works very hard at this and that he's energized by the Holy Spirit to do it. So this <clears throat> is a little miniature portrait of Paul and how he thinks about his own ministry. Now, if we could study this subject uh, of how Paul thinks of himself, and there'd be many, many more verses in the New Testament that we could look at. Second Corinthians has quite a few of those. But just in these few verses, we get a feeling for the intensity of his zeal. We get also a feeling of why it was that the Lord chose him to put his finger on on the road to Damascus. Just because of his nature and who he was. He was a type A personality. He was zealous. He's the kind of person that often, uh, in, in my um, experience with CMML, I've met many missionaries, and many of them are sort of like this. They're they're type A personalities, and they're zealous for the gospel, and so much so that they're willing to 
to give up a comfortable, possibly comfortable life here in the United States and go to a, another culture and have to learn that, learn the language and never really be part of the culture like they were in the United States. Um, that's the kind of person that Paul was. He was willing to give all of that up and spend his whole life. And what did he desire? It wasn't to build up his own ministry. It wasn't to have more hits on his uh, on his Instagram account as he built this ministry up or something like that. His desire was for the people he was ministering to. And what he wanted to see was that they walked in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And so now we come to the second half of this chapter. I'm not going to do those last few verses. We'll consider those covered uh, as, as I just went over them and what how Paul thinks of himself. And we're going to focus on um, <clears throat> just uh, uh, verses 15 through uh, 23. Um, <clears throat> and what I would like to say about this is that Paul does not see this as a small thing. It's not sort of like, it's not a niche ministry that he's, he, this is what he's decided to do. He sees it as fundamental and important, and it's a huge thing to him. Um, and we're going to see that he has a very high view of the Lord. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He has a very high view of the Lord, and we're going to see that in a couple of minutes. And so to walk in a manner worthy of that Lord is a very big thing to walk in a manner worthy of this Lord. How big? Well, we see uh, in just, just before our passage in verses 13 and 14 that we are delivered from the domain of darkness. We are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. So here's a question, and this is sort of the, the overarching question that I want to, to ask today. In fact, I've entitled this sermon, Why Walk Worthy? Why should we walk worthy? Paul is praying every day for the Colossians that they might walk worthy of their Lord. So does he mean by that, Lord, keep poking them and poking them so that they walk worthy? Or is he asking for... Uh, the Lord to, uh, through his Holy Spirit, to remind them and motivate them so that they make the right choices in their lives. I think it's the, it's the latter because we have to make choices in our lives of how we walk. And he's asking the Lord that they might make the right choices. But why should they make the right choices? What's our motivation for walking worthy? Do we just read these verses and then go home and do what we like? Or do we actually respond to them and say, yes, I want to walk worthy of the Lord? And so that's what we'll look at today. Why walk worthy? Why should we walk worthy? And those two verses just before our passage in 13 and 14 actually give us, should be sufficient motivation because of all the things that have been done for us. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been delivered. We've been moved into the, the kingdom of his beloved son. 
we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. Those sound like great things that should motivate us. Well, should they? Or is there more? And there actually is more. And that's what we're, we're going to look at. I would like to suggest that uh, the, the section from 15 to 23, we can split up into three sections of three verses each. So in 15 through 17, so what we're going to see here is three reasons, three big reasons to, that we might be motivated to walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. 15 through 17, we're going to look at Christ's relationship to his creation. Then in 18 through 20, we're looking at Christ's relationship to his church. And then in 21 through 23, we'll look at Christ's relationship to his child. So three things, and all of these will give us a, a multitude of motivational energy for walking worthy of the Lord. His relationship to the creation to his church and to his child and uh i i must say that these nine verses are some of the most wonderful verses in all of scripture these nine verses are where we get a lot of our christology our theology of christ our theology of the lord jesus come from these nine verses they're just rich, and we can only really scratch the surface of all the beauty that's in here. Um, <clears throat> and the more you look at something like this, the more you you see that the Holy Spirit, you see the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the writers of the Bible to do what they did. That you you see that uh, it's deeper than just what somebody could dash off in a letter. It's just so full of uh, a rich mine of, of uh, information and motivation and theology that, well, I certainly can't imagine writing a letter that would be so timeless as this. And even a great, but I'm no Paul, but even a great person like Paul, I just can't imagine a human on their own being able to do this. So you just get a sense, the more you look at it, of it being inspired by the uh, by the holy spirit so let's look at the first three of these verses 15 16 and 17 christ's relationship to his creation he says he is uh, paul says that christ is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation well already that's loaded with beauty it says he's the image of the invisible god so there's two ideas here first of all that he is god and secondly that he is God in visible form. So Paul isn't saying that he's a, he's a photograph of God. Because today we might see, well, uh, we, might, we might look on, um, on our camera and say, well, this is an image of my wife. But it's not that that he's saying. He's saying that he is God, but that he's God made manifest. He's God so that we can see God. That's what he's saying. He's the image of the invisible God. Without, I mean, God is spirit. God is invisible. And yet, Christ has made him visible to us. 
That's what he's saying there. And it says he's the firstborn of all creation. And we have to be very careful with this word firstborn because it can lead and has in the past to uh, a false doctrine. And that is the doctrine that Christ is not eternally existence, that, that he didn't exist into the infinite past, that somehow he came into existence at some point. The Lord Jesus was born into the world, but God the Son always existed. So firstborn here doesn't mean born in the sense that each of us was born. It has a different connotation, and it has this connotation all through Scripture, this idea of uh, being the firstborn. It means, uh, uh, it means being the preeminent one as we'll see in the next section, that in all things he might have the preeminent. It means, because this is what the firstborn in a, in a, in a human family was. He, was. he was the special one. He was the firstborn. He was the inheritor of, of the, the land. Um, he was the special one. So, but it has that, that sense of being, the, uh, that quality of firstbornness is what Paul is talking about here. Another way that this could be translated is the firstborn over all creation. So he has that preeminence over creation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that he was that uh, he came out of the creation, that he was created, but he that he has the preeminence over the creation. Psalm 89, 27. Here's some evidence. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Okay, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. In other words, firstborn is connected to the idea of the highest of the kings of earth. Not that he's born first, but that he has that preeminence. That's what the firstborn means here. So Christ is the most prime person that was ever born in the world and um, he's uh, the king of kings. We read that in Revelation chapter 17. We read it in Revelation chapter 19. We referred to it earlier this morning when when uh, Annie led us off thinking about the crown of thorns and the crown of the of the savior. <clears throat> um, but there's there's a, an even sort of greater sense than this. He's he's preeminent over everything, over the creation, over the whole universe. He's he's over it all. Not just you don't just have to collect up all the kings that live today and that have ever lived and say, well, he's the king of those kings. But he's preeminent over everything, over every rock and blade of grass and sparrow and planet and and nebula and, and black hole. He's he's preeminent over all of that. He's the firstborn of all creation. Goes on in verse 16 to say, by him all things were created. What a tremendous verse uh, this is with 17. By, by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. What do we learn here? We learn, uh, Paul gives us a five-way expansion of this idea of firstborn. Five things. Everything was created by him, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. One thing when I was um, 
thinking about this and preparing for this that it had never occurred to me before, but I'd always read that he uh, created by him heaven and earth. I always thought of heaven as like the heavens. Uh, so we live on the earth and we look up and we see the heavens, you know, the stars and the universe and things like that. I always thought of it as our material universe. But I wonder if it actually is referring here to what we call heaven, the domain where God lives and exists. And I think that's a reasonable interpretation. In other words, Christ not only created this universe, which is captured in earth, but he created heaven itself. So God is, we believe that God is eternally existent by himself with nothing else. But I think this is suggesting that Christ created heaven itself with the angels and, and the whole place in heaven and everything that goes on in heaven that we can't see, but that we will one day uh, when we go to meet him. He created all of that as well. All of this was created by him. That's number one. Number two, everything was created through him. It's a bit of a mystery. He created it, but it was created through him. Number three, everything was created for him. Why did he do all this creation? God is eternally self-existent. He's not lonely. So why did he even bother to create the whole realm of the angels and all of hum humanity and, and this universe? Why did he do that? Well, we could say that it's actually a bit of a mystery, but um, many theologians have tried to understand that very deep question. And the Westminster Catechism uh, starts off with what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to worship and uh, worship God. And perhaps that's the reason that he created it so that he would have a people that worshiped him. And there's, there's nothing uh, narcissistic about that. It would be if we tried to do something like that, but this is God who is self-existent and doesn't need us at all. He doesn't need to have created us. Wow. So, he created us to worship him. That's where we belong, is worshiping him. That's number three. Number four, everything exists outside of him. It says in verse 17, he's before all things. In other words, it's not, he, he, he is not part of the creation, even though he was born into it. It all exists outside of him. So there's a, there's a, there's a, He's not created by something else, but he's he's uh, everything exists outside of him in time and space. Uh, it exists outside of him. And finally, everything holds together in him. And um, there's various ways of thinking about this. But the way I like thinking about it is that he holds it in existence. He's created it all and he holds it in existence. There's some very... Uh, deep mysteries in in quantum mechanics that still we don't really understand and and I sometimes wonder if those mysteries are solved just by understanding that Christ is holding everything together and uh, he's causing every atom and every neutron and every quark to come and go and and he's just he's he's got Eddington Sir Arthur Eddington the great physicist astronomer once estimated that there's 10 to the 80th particles in the universe that's one followed by 80 zeros 
And, uh, and I just imagine the Lord, he knows where every one of those particles is and he's moving it around and, uh, and he's holding it in existence. And if his mind wandered for a nanosecond, it would all disappear. The whole universe, he's holding it together. That's just a way of trying to understand the, who the Lord is. And goodness, doesn't that give us motivation? If we are saved into his kingdom of light, this is the person that we're serving. Surely, knowing this person is sufficient motivation for walking worthy of knowing him. I love this. Then the next three verses are about Christ's relationship with the church. It says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, Ephesians 5 tells us, uh, verses uh, 25 to 27, tell us that uh, the great work that he's doing here on earth is building his church. As I've said many times before, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what he's doing. It, creating the world wasn't just an experiment um, of, of God thinking up, you know, Maxwell's equations or something and saying, I'm going to create a universe and, and turn it on and see, see what happens. It's not that. He actually has a purpose. He has a thing that he's doing here in the world. The thing that he's doing in the world is building his church. Uh, uh, Christ, Christ isn't just here to, um, he didn't live on the earth just to be an example on how to live. He wasn't just an example, but he came to do something. And his purpose was to save out a people for himself and then build that up over the millennia following, following his death and resurrection. And in fact, the, the church, um, is, we, we've, when we were going through Acts, we were saying that the church really started there at uh, Pentecost. You could even say that it started with his resurrection, because that, that is sort of the cornerstone. He, he died, as we were remembering earlier this morning, and he accomplished that great sacrificial death that made this possible. But the thing that, that uh, confirmed and put the stamp of truth and rightness on it was his resurrection. And the resurrection is so important to us because it, it shows us metaphorically that that what he's doing is bringing something that's dead to life he himself went from death to life through his resurrection and so that's the foundation it's the cornerstone of the church that in all things he might be preeminent he says in uh, paul says in romans chapter 8 he says for the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god and that's looking forward to a time when god's going to recreate and uh th this creation is going to be set free from its bondage and again it's that idea of resurrection that that, that this is fundamental that the work he's doing is based on the resurrection 
says in verse 19, for him, in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And uh, this is also uh, a verse that has been uh, taken incorrectly in sometimes in false theology. It doesn't mean that God looked down and saw a human. like He saw Paul and he revealed himself to Paul and Paul became uh, the great apostle Paul. Uh, after that experience, it doesn't mean that he looked down and saw Mary and said, um, uh, I think I'm going to insert myself, my spirit or something like that, into the the baby that's in your womb. No, he actually became that baby, God himself. And of course, this is this is a, a huge mystery and we can't wrap our minds around it. Um, but but this is what he did. He he uh, he became a child in the earth. In in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that's a great confirmation of the fact that we we often say here at Terrell Road that Jesus Christ, we call him the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God. We've often said that that Jesus is God. And where do we get that in the Bible? Well, there's a lot of places, but this is a good place here to look at right here. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that God himself was pleased to become a man and live on the earth. And that man was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then not only that, was it was God pleased to dwell and this touches on the love of God and why he would even do this. And we don't really understand that, why he loves us so much. But it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, of the cross. And again, this idea of resurrection and reversing the effects of death. This is, this is what he's done. All the fullness of God has come in. And that's what he's trying to do. He's, he's doing a work on earth that's reversing the effects of death. And it isn't, it, the work isn't, uh, as I said, to just come to the earth and be an example of, of, you know, a good way to live. A lot of people think about the Lord Jesus Christ that way. He's a, he, he's a, what a great example. What a great life he lived. I'd like to live a life that's, you know, mostly like that. And uh, that's why he came. That's not why he came. To, to just be an example and, and hope for the best that people will follow that example. He came to start a work to build his church and he's building a people. And I'm confident that I'm part of that. And I think as I look around, I know all of you, I'm confident that you all believe the same thing about yourself. But many people, in fact, the majority of the world, the majority at least two-thirds, and probably a lot more than that, doesn't believe that. And when God is building his church, it's presently true that at least two-thirds of the world is not part of that. The work that he's doing applies to the people that are in the church. And this is the way to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel is, that the work that he did on earth at the time that he lived here makes it possible for anyone to come into that smaller group by understanding and confessing that we need Christ and coming into 
the kingdom of God, stepping into it as he invites us in. But we're not all in it. He's doing his work. That's what he's doing. That's his relationship to the church. He came here to die for the church. He rose again to put the stamp of truth on that, to to metaphorically show that he was reversing the effects of Adam's sin and death. And then he continues to work, and especially through the Holy Spirit, in building that people, building that people up. And I'm part of that. Now, that should be motivation for me to walk worthy of the Lord. That I get to be part of what he's doing. That I'm not just sort of aimlessly wandering around and thinking every day, oh, what would Jesus do? But no, I am part of what he's doing and building in this world. That's his relationship to the church. And finally, his relationship to uh, his child. It says in verse 21, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So at this point, Paul makes this ministry of the Lord Jesus, his ministry of reconciliation, his building of the church. He makes it personal. And he talks about the individual person, the individual child, of God. And he says he's uh he says what he's trying to do. So he's not only the church, you know, he's building his church, he's bringing people into the church, but it's what he's doing to those people. It's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what he's doing. I thought of a um uh uh a sort of metaphor of this Uh, Notice that he says, uh, he describes two conditions. He says, you were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. And then contrast that with what he's doing, reconciled, holy, blameless, above reproach. Here's the metaphor. I want you to imagine, and I think we can all do this. I want you to imagine uh, a homeless person, maybe the most pathetic homeless person you've ever seen. And we've all seen that. We've been in New York City or even in our own towns. Um, if you've been out to San Francisco, there's a lot of homeless people there. But think, try to remember the sort of the most pathetic homeless person you've ever seen. Um, and what's that person like? He's dirty. He's hungry. He's cold. He's dressed in stinking clothes and he stinks himself he's unshaven just miserable miserable human being no place to lay his head i'm thinking of a person that fiona and i saw we we stayed in paris for a few days and visited some missionaries there in the the airbnb we stayed in um was right across from one of the extension schools of the Sorbonne University, which is a very uh, prestigious university. But we could see out our second floor window right across the road down there was a homeless man and he was just sleeping next to the building. And that's where he lived. And it was just, oh, it just broke our hearts to see him there, right down there. So think of that person. Think of that person. Now, I want you to think of a different person. Um, maybe it's you, but 
think of a different person. I want you to think of a person who's uh, not homeless, lives in a nice home, with beautiful property, and uh, they're well-adjusted psychologically. Uh, they're clean. It's a healthy person. It's a well-off person, wealthy. It's a happy person. Good job. Family around him or her. Lots of great events happening in their life that are all positive and nothing seedy about this person. Just a really, really nice, wonderful person. Now I want you to imagine that it's your job and you're given, you're given resources to do this. So you've got the money you need to spend, but it's your job to go up to that homeless person and transform them into that really nice person. They may not want it. They may not want to do that, but you have to convince them first. And you can imagine the steps getting them to a certain place, getting them cleaned up, getting them clothes, getting them a place to live. Uh, it takes a long time. Uh, you, uh, it'll be a while before they're, maybe they have to go to therapy uh, to, to fix their mind. Um, help, you help them with relationships and uh, maybe they can even get married and get a family and uh, get a job. And, and you, you just pour your life into helping that person. Okay, so do you see that transformation? Your job is to change one into the other. Well, you can see where I'm going for this, with this. That's what the Lord did. That's what he's doing as he builds his church. He's taking us from that position of dead in sin, which in our metaphor is the homeless person, and taking us and transferring us to his kingdom of life. Each individually, personally, he's taking us on as a project, he's, building a church doesn't just mean building a structure. He's taking each of us on as a project to take us from the homeless to the well-adjusted and happy and holy person that he wants us to be. Surely that's motivation to walk worthy of the Lord when you think about that. And then he finishes up in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, <clears throat> there's a way you could interpret that verse that is a little uncomfortable, which says that he will, uh, you'll, you'll only make it to heaven if you do something. But we don't believe that the gospel says that. We believe that the Lord, in his death on the cross, accomplished that transference that put us into the kingdom of light. When we entered the kingdom of light, we were still that homeless person. We still needed a transformation in our lives. And I think what he's saying here, if indeed you continue, really refers back to the fact that he wants to present us holy and blameless, it says at the, ver at the end of verse uh, 22. He wants a, to present us holy and blameless. <clears throat> and it's, it's pointing up the fact that it's not only Christ working us, but there's a job for us to do as well. 
And that's one of the reasons that we come to church is to hear the scriptures and understand what it is that we have to do. We're not doing this for our own salvation. We're doing it because we have a part in this process that he's doing in taking us from the homeless to the well-adjusted. We have a part to do. And, you know, if we don't do our part, according to the scriptures, we still make it to heaven. But there's consequences. And that's covered in other uh, of Paul's writings. There are, there are consequences to that. Um, you read 1 Corinthians 3 about that. There's consequences to that. But let's not think about that. Let's just think about what he's trying to do and the fact that there are steps. And Paul says, make the right decisions in your life. Understand what your role is in order to do this process. The Holy Spirit lives in you and is convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's bringing to remembrance the words of Christ. He's allowing you to be part of a community like Terrell Road, where we can open the scriptures together and study, and we can help each other, and we can help each other build up. And listening to all of that input and then making the right decisions, I think that's what Paul means when he says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Don't drift off. Don't let it just be some thing that happened in the past that you met Christ and came uh, into his kingdom, but stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Keep it in your heart. Be a part of what God is doing. <laughs> it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, and, uh, well, no, that's, I didn't want to say that. If, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, the, the Lord talks about what he's doing in our lives. He's changing us from one degree of glory to another. He's doing a work in our lives, changing us from one degree of glory to another. But we can prevent that. We can prevent that by making wrong decisions, by not listening to him, by going off in our own, in our own way. It would be like the homeless man saying, well, no, I kind of like my stinky clothes. Uh, you know, I don't want to put on these nice new clothes that you're offering me. Um, so we can prevent it. And Paul is telling us here, no, don't prevent that. Be steady and steadfast and stable and, and keep that gospel in front of you. He says, he says in Philippians, uh, we set our minds on the, on the, the, the prize that's ahead of us. We, we look ahead and we set our, our minds on this. So the bottom line is that Christ wants to present us perfect in that last day. And we have our part. Again, walk worthy. That's a command. Walk worthy. Verse 23, continue. Steadfast. Not shifting. We have our part. And it's a high calling. He's working now, today, on earth to build his church. He has his ministers preaching the gospel and convicting hearts and, and discipling people. He has his people all over the world right now at this moment worshiping him. He has people uh, building each other up. It's a vast, complex work that he's doing, but that is the work that he's doing. 
Is this enough motivation for me to do my part? I hope it is. Christ and his relationship to his creation, his church, his child. It's a magnificent picture that Paul is producing here. And I know sometimes Paul gets carried away and just just wants to speak about Christ, which is what he's doing here. But I think in the context here with the verses that I read before this section and the verses that I read afterwards, that he's saying these things to encourage and motivate the Colossians, that it's not just abstract theology, but it's there for motivation. So let's follow Paul's example. And as we pray for each other, like we we say to each other in the announcements every week, pray for each other. As we pray for each other, this is a good thing to pray. That all of our fellow Christians here at TRBC would walk worthy of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these uh, tremendous words that you've given to us through your servant. And uh, our desire is that we would walk worthy of you. but We pray that you would make that more than just daydreaming about what could be, but that we would actually be motivated and do the things that we have to do. Help us to be steadfast, immovable, and always moving forward in the gospel of peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.